This morning we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front. It's going to let you know where the different books are found. And then as we work our way through this, the large numbers are going to be chapters and the small numbers are verses. Again, this morning we're in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. If you have been attending Ridgecrest for any length of time, uh, then you will know that one of the things that we are passionate about is unity and praying for the other churches of our community and working alongside these other churches. If you've attended very many of these services, you will have heard us pray repeatedly for other churches and specifically and for the other churches of our community. And if you've been here for a longer period of time, then you've seen how we work together with them throughout the year and then also how we uh, work together with a number of different churches in for the city. We come together to visit people in nursing homes, to paint homes, to uh, do roof work, to remove all the uh, chiggers from everybody's yards by offering up our bodies as an acceptable sacrifice. And so any number of things that we've done, some more enjoyable uh, than others. But I was thinking about when we kind of began to kick this off and have these conversations there was a, a terrific amount of resistance that was encountered with phone calls. Hey, how would you feel if we came together? And it was this idea of, well, I'm not really sure what that would look like. How would it benefit me? And is that really something worthwhile that we want to do? Well, the, the fascinating thing, I think, as we come into John 17, is that we find that unity isn't an option. Like working together and cooperating together is not a, an option, but it is a mandate. In fact, it is very near to the heart of God, and it is revealed in how we are meant to exist as a New Testament church. And so what Jesus gives here to the disciples is a clear picture and a mandate for unity, and a unity that's particularized in a very specific way. And so I think it's going to be incredibly helpful to us as we had this panel last week that talked about, man, let's go to the nations, and what does that look like? And, and then as we begin to prep and begin to look for, for the city this summer, I want our, to, our hearts to be set on this. Now, the fascinating thing about John 17 is it's been this prayer that Jesus has spoken to the Father. And so he's worked through, and it opens up, and it's just this communion with he and the Lord. And saying, God, help me to be ready for this. Make this to be true of me. And then he turns, and he begins to pray specifically for his disciples. But what we see in 20 through 26 isn't a prayer for the disciples, but he turns squarely and he thinks beyond. He looks beyond the disciples, and in a very real sense, he looks at you. In a very real sense, he looks at me. He looks at those who would come to faith after having heard this transmission of the message which began with him, past the disciples, and so on, and so on, and so on. Let's read 20 through 26 as we give our hearts to the ready application of God's word. Jesus speaks and John records, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these that you have sent me know you. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Man, how incredibly amazing is it that Jesus, after he meets with the disciples in the upper room, and in this intervening time where he's moving from there and he's headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane, where ultimately he would be betrayed and he would be handed over to Roman soldiers, that in these intervening hours and moments that he had this intimate prayer to the Father, and then then further in the providence of God, he deemed that this prayer would be recorded and would be handed down, that today, even today, that we would read these words, hear his commentary, and be encouraged. Look what he says, I don't ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And Jesus gives us a wonderful picture of what Paul would later summarize in 2 Timothy 2, 2, where he wrote and says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Faith has within it not a, a beginning and an end, but faith has within it this aspect of constantly pouring out and impacting other people. Not merely just impacting our children in hopes that they would impact our grandchildren, but impacting our neighbors so they would impact their neighbors. Impacting our co-workers so they would turn to their co-workers and impact them. Impacting people at Walmart so they would turn around and impact people at Super One. I mean, and so we begin to see how this is spelled out over and over and over again. This is the heart of God. This missionary heart that is set upon others coming to know him. Jesus has this opportunity to pray solely for the disciples, but instead he prays for those who have not yet heard. And in this we see the heart of our God that is caught up and captivated in praying for the hearts of those who have not yet heard. But he has this audacious prayer. He has, he has this insane uh, belief that the church could be one, that the church could be unified. And, 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 you know, it doesn't take very long within the church. It doesn't take very long within our experience of engaging in the church before we begin to realize how incredibly difficult this is. Some of us find it incredibly difficult because you yourself are a difficult person. The reason that you, you have a hard time being with anybody else is simply this, everybody has a hard time being with you, Right? This is, this is true for us, and, and we have to come to an understanding of this. Some of us need to get past our difficulties so we quit wearing out everybody around us. But what does he call us to? He still calls us to be one. Look at verse 21. He says, I'm praying for them, 20. Why? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, this is insane. Jesus equates, equates the oneness that should be in the church with the same radical unity that he has with the Father. That's insane! Have you been in very many churches? Have you been in this church very long? I mean, come on! He equates it. He doesn't say, listen, 
if it could be like a, like a subclass, you know, like a C, like we're the perfect whatever, and if they could just do it a little bit and talk about unity a lot, maybe have some massive unity banners and call people to this, but really, really we know that they just can't do this. But no, he says, listen, I want them to have this so that just as I am in you and you and me, they may be one. This is what he calls them to. Man, this is the heart of Jesus, and it should be at the heart of what we are and what we work towards. Now, recognize this. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. If we're to go out and to say, look, we all have to be one, and we all have to be the same one, that's uniformity. We all have to look a certain way. We all have to say the same things. We all have to be a certain way. This would be radically difficult. Why? Well, well, for one thing, we all wear different size pants and different size shirts and all kinds of things. You can just begin to think of all the various reasons why this would be practically difficult. And think about this. The Father is distinct and different than the Son, and the Son is distinct and different than the Father. Yet, they maintain perfect unity. Unity, not uniformity. Unity, not uniformity. We can work with those we disagree with. Amen? We should work with those we disagree with. But we begin to recognize that even within this, there are limits to our unity. It is unity. But it is an exclusive unity. Paul gives us this wonderful picture of kind of the limits of our unity, or rather the beginning place of our unity. He's writing and addressing the subject of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, For I have delivered to you what is of first importance, so preeminent importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he goes on and gives us a whole kind of lineage of how these things work out. We recognize that there could be things that we would disagree with and say, we cannot be unified with you. Unity isn't a carte blanche invitation to say it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter how you articulate what you believe, we're going to cooperate together. There are things that you can believe, a church could believe, that would invalidate their uh, ability to be a Christian church. And we have to be clear on this. We have to be clear on this. We live at a time and a culture that is shifting towards radical inclusion, saying that it is inappropriate and it is wrong to exclude anybody. But what we see within the context of Scripture is that this unity is incredibly exclusive. It is centered on Christ. It's centered on Christ. And so I believe people, out of, out of a desire to be good-natured and to be magnanimous and to be joyous and to be inclusive, want people to join in that cannot for instance, if, if in the midst of this kind of uh, this sense of unity and wanting to bring people together and say, yes, we want all the churches in our community to take part, somebody were to come along and say, listen, we want the Mormon church to take part in this, we would have to say no. Compassionately but strongly, we would have to say no. Why? On the basis that they do not believe as we do. They don't believe in, in the same Jesus we do, but they don't believe in the same God that we do, any number of distinctions and differences that would force us not to allow them on the basis that they cannot rightly be considered Christians. We have to be firm in this. But our firmness must be matched with compassion because we recognize that everybody who falls outside our ability to extend grace and compassion to 
or to find commonality in these is still deserving of grace and compassion. So while we might go to them and say, no, we cannot cooperate in this because the way we read the Bible, our understanding of what God says leads us to the conclusion, friend, that you are not a Christian. And because of this, our cooperation has to look different. We're still good neighbors, we still want the same things for our community, but we come at it from a radically different perspective. This unity is exclusive. So the church has to be unified. And we recognize that this unity begins in the family, that an individual family has to be unified, and that's difficult because you have a man and a woman, you have children that make it so much more difficult. And the family struggles to be unified. And within the larger group of family, you add in the extended family. Oh, and you're just making it so much more pronounced and difficult. And then you add in neighbors, and you add in coworkers, and you add in people you go to church with. And we begin to see how this is so incredibly difficult. But does the command change? No, it doesn't. The difficulty of this does not remove from us the responsibility to fully engage. Just because it's hard doesn't mean we get a pass or a buy. This is what he desires us to be. This is his prayer for us. And why is this his prayer for us? Why does Jesus care one bit about unity? Because for whatever reason, God seemed fit to tie unity to evangelism. He seemed fit to tie unity to the proclamation of the gospel. Look what he says in the last part of 21. They need to be one. They need to be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. In John 17 and 3, Jesus kind of expands upon this idea. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Unity displays the gospel. Unity displays the gospel. And so you might also say that, that a fractured church displays the opposite of the gospel. And this is why we work so hard against church splits. This is why we constantly counsel and say, please don't split. Please work it out. Please stay together. Is there anything we could do? Is there anything you could do? Is there any humility that you might be able to take on? Is there any humility that a leader might be able to take on that would further display the perfection of the gospel in bringing people to be one? Because lost people matter. And because their lives hang in the balance. And every time a church splits, and every time somebody maligns a church, and every time church members turn to one another and they begin to gossip and begin to destroy the church, they are tearing down the body of Christ. And in so doing, they're causing lost people to look over this. And instead of saying it's so beautiful, it's so great, and so one, they say it's so ugly, it's so caustic, it's so devastating, I never want to be a part of it. We cannot afford to be anything other than unified. The souls of our neighbors depend on it. The souls of our children depend on it. The souls of the lost people up and down Wesley Street depend on it. The souls of the people at L3 depend on it. The souls of the people in every school, in every community, the world over, depend on us getting over ourselves and being unified. We have to. We don't have the luxury of pursuing anything else. It doesn't mean we excuse sin, but it does mean we have to get over ourselves some of us leaders have got to get over ourselves. Some of us as followers have got to move beyond our preferences. We have to be one. Good news, we're not left alone. In verse 22, 
Jesus comes and he tells us that he's given us something to be helpful. Have you ever been called to a task that you approached it and you thought, dear Lord, I have no idea how to do this. Would you supernaturally imbue me with certain knowledge to help me be able to do this? I'm the only idiot. I can remember I was working in a truck shop, uh, Valerie, and I hadn't been very, very long, and I was familiar with a blowtorch, but I wouldn't say I was intimately familiar uh, with the torch. And so uh, this mechanic said, I need you to go over there and take that torch and cut those things apart. I'm like, oh, man, I finally get to do something other than push a broom. I'm totally going to do this. And it had been a number of years since I'd been in ag mechanics in high school, and what I didn't realize is that Carlos Broussard, for all of his flaws and failures, had always set the machine up to work flawlessly. So you walk up, you know, just a little bit, tweak, and then you pull the thing, and it's just amazing. I may or may not have forgotten the ratios. So I go over there, and effectively what I'm doing is just melting everything. I'm not cutting anything. I'm just melting everything. And the mechanic comes over, and he says, and I'm just going to make this polite, what, pray tell, are you doing? <laughs> now, just know that was a little bit nicer than what he said. And I said, isn't it obvious? <laughs> he says, the only thing obvious, and let me again make this a little more polite, that you seem to be unacquainted with this uh, <laughs> machinery here. <laughs> I was ill-suited to handle that and what I needed was expert advice and he gave it to me in a succinct fashion that I'm still trying to forget <laughs> but look what Jesus says he says the glory that you have given me I have given to them what we find this glory isn't a vision of him but this is an equipping glory for an express purpose he has given us this glory so that we, we may be one even as he and the father are one Jesus has equipped us with grace and mercy and his glory and his spirit at work in our hearts so that we might overlook the difficulties of the people beside us, so that they might overlook the difficulties and the encumbrance of, found in ourselves, so that we might be one. He desires us to be one. He equips us and enables us to be one. Why aren't we one? Why aren't we? The only conclusion I think that we could rightly come to for our lack of unity is a selfishness inborn in my desire to have it my way. And everything in your heart that says, I want to have it my way, if we are going to be unified, if we're going to be impactful, if we're going to show the church to be beautiful so that a lot of people see the church and say, yes, I want in, let me in, we have to be unified. And he equips us and gives us everything we need for this. God wants us to be one. He equips us to be one. And then he goes on, he says, that they may be perfectly one. How do we get there? We don't get to be unified solely by exalting the desires of the people around us. Now, that's great. And I think Paul gives us a picture of that in Philippians 2. Look, not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Considering them more significant than yourselves, that's where we start. That's where we start. Other people have to be more significant than I am. Other people have to be more significant than you are. And this has to be our mantra, and this has to be the way that we live our lives. But beyond this, we see this idea that we would become perfectly one 
as you come to know Jesus in increasing measure, as you submit your heart to him, and, and your heartbeat begins to sound like his heartbeat, and you go closer and closer and closer to him, what you'll find is that the areas of your life that work against this unity are falling off. That the areas of your life that are keeping you from growing closer to him are falling away. And so we aren't growing closer and closer and being one in our difficulties and in our weaknesses. We are growing closer and closer and being one because God is doing this together with all of us. So the God in me, the spirit at work in me is at work in the spirit by the person beside me. And the spirit in the spirit is growing closer and closer together. And bringing us and causing us to look at him instead of looking at those things that are keeping us apart. We might be perfectly one. And again, we see the same reason. He says, this is why they have to be perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me. Because billions of lost people are twisting in the wind, headed towards an eternity separated from the love of God. This is why we must be one. Because thousands of people in Greenville, Texas, and in Hunt County are lost without hope and are dying. Because the thousands of people have bought into a false gospel that says, all I have to be is a good person and do nice things, and God will let me into heaven. This is why we have to be one. This is why it matters. If you care nothing for the lost, you care nothing for the lost, actually, I would begin to wonder whether or not you're a Christian in the first place, because our God's heart is situated and desiring and moving towards them. He compels us to care. It's our sinfulness and selfishness that says it's an option. It is our God's heartbeat, and it is our heartbeat, because he has given it to us. Amen? We have to be ones because the world is watching. And listen to what he says next that they may be perfectly one, and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the most scandalous thing he writes in the whole thing. Everything else, I think, in some sense is difficult because we recognize that it requires the submission of ourselves to his call. We have to be one so they can see, but what this is is incredibly scandalous. He doesn't merely write and say, you just need to know this, that in their unity and equipping them with this grace, equipping them with this glory, that they would, would, would know and proclaim that you have sent me, but so that they would know that you have loved them even as you've loved me. The scandalous message of this passage is that God the Father, when he looks down through the corridor of time and he sees you believing on his son Jesus, extends to you visits you, lavishes upon you the same love with which he loves his son. There is no distinction, there is no difference. So you begin to think of the Trinity. If God the Father and Holy Spirit dwelling in perfect harmony, perfectly loving one another, perfectly filling out their role, and then you have the intimacy between the Father and the Son in this love that we read about, and we read about it in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. And in this relationship, we have this radical understanding that God has this, this all-encompassing love for the Son that is without flaw, that is without blemish, that is wholly perfect. And what we read in this is that he has that same love for us. So you may sit here today. You may say, I don't, 
have a sense of the love of God. I feel like it is remote and distant, and perhaps it's not something I can experience. But what we read in this says that if you are united to God through Jesus, that he has this scandalous, all-encompassing, perfect, fix everything that's broken, mend everything that's hurting, equipping love coming for you. It's yours. Jesus wants you to experience it. The Father wants you to enjoy it. He says it's the same love the Father has for the Son. As the waiting world watches in desperation, we have received the love of the Father, the same love with which he extended to the Son, And then Jesus turns in 24 through 26 and begins to wrap up his prayer. And he says, Father, speaking of the disciples now, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. In John 14, he began to talk to the disciples about his departure. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would not have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus turns to the disciple, turns in prayer towards the disciples and asks the Father that they would be where he is. That they might have an experience of his glory unlike anything they've seen. They've seen Jesus perform miracles. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him calm the waves. They've seen him raise the dead. And they will see him be raised himself. But in all these things, Jesus says, I want them to come where I'm going. And I believe the same prayer that Jesus prayed for the disciples, he would extend to us that his prayer for us those who believe in him is that where he is, we would be going. And those prayer that he has for those who are far apart from him, who have not believed in Jesus, is that we would believe, and in believing, we would be heading where he is. That we would have this radical experience and exposure to behold, to see, to be caught up in rapture, beholding is what we see here in 24, to see my glory. It's his pre-existent glory. John opens up and he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus exists before the creation of time, and he is there with God in the radiance of his glory. And that's what he desires for us to see again, him as he is. Man, our future is secure. Our future is secure. He turns and he says, Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these, and these know you that you have sent me. He says, The faith of the disciples isn't in question. I know that they know you. They know you through my revelation. They know you what I've told them. They know you through what I've shown them. They know you through what I've done. But still we read these words. He says, The world doesn't know you. We see this, don't we? We see that that world doesn't know him in the ways that they engage, in the ways that they act. That there's little care or regard for human life, that there's little care or regard for 
a right response to God in terms of gender or sexuality. We see in this not a political problem to be fixed, but we see that within this a heart response, that hearts are dead and far away from the Lord, hearts in need of the touch of the gospel. So we put our faith and trust in him, and our hearts are broken for the world. Too often we have this wrong response that's caught up in frustration and anger, and, and, and it's all in this thought of, why are you making the world this way? Why is this your vision of the world? You see, for the world they're seeking to make this, this euphoric state that, that this paradise here, well, we recognize, according to First Peter and elsewhere, that this is not our home. So friends, fundamentally, we're not angry. We're heartbroken. And would you join with the heart of the Lord in being heartbroken over lostness? And not lostness to some remote far distant place but lostness that lives here lostness that resides in the hearts of some of those who populate the halls of churches every Sunday and every Wednesday lostness that lives in our home lostness for some of us that lives in our own heart the heart of God breaks for lostness it should break our heart too to break our heart too. Jesus has made known his name into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 26, we see how Jesus continues to operate even today. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit works in the heart of the believer, reminding them of the truth of God's word and bringing the truth of God's word in their life into balance one with another. It is our lives lived in submission to God that allow his Holy Spirit to do his work in our hearts. Amen? This is what he calls us to. This is what he calls us to. This idea of submitting ourselves as Holy Spirit at work and for what purpose? He says that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We have a radical opportunity to do a number of different things. We have a radical opportunity to live in unity as this church. This requires every man, every woman, every child, every family, every extended family, and everyone here to be on the same page. And it seems to be that the end of this is that lost people would hear the gospel and that they would see the gospel displayed. It's a hard word. But it seems to me that it's the only work we get to do. Being those who have received his equipping glory being those who have come to know him as Savior and Lord, we have an opportunity to show them Jesus in our unity. We have an opportunity to overcome obstacles and difficulties and disagreements and to work with others for whom Christ died. Will we be unified? Or will we be disobedient?
Man, I'm so thankful that today we have an opportunity to take the supper together. Because the supper is a picture of unity. One table. One element in his body. We have a picture of his blood in the cup. We have a picture of his body in the bread. But all him. This renewing covenant that he has given us in both his body and the blood. Today, would you join me in making a declaration of our unity and fidelity and submission to Jesus as we join around this table? Let me pray for us and pray for the gospel's impact as we give our hearts to unity, to our Lord. Father, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to worship you in taking of the supper. God, I pray for our deacons that as they serve, God, that they would be doing so out of a love and a support for you. God, I pray for our body that as we take the supper together, that it would be a picture of our joint submission to you. Father, I pray for those who came in this morning far from you. God, our desire is that they would have submitted themselves to you and come to know you, confessing their sin to you, and that they are now ready. But God, for those who are not yet ready, I pray that you would continue to do work in their heart, showing them again and again and again that you have the same love for them that you do for your son, Jesus. And Father, we submit these things to you in his name. Amen. Amen.